right. Well, it's a thin crowd today, but happy Memorial Day. Let's uh, let's open up in prayer. We will. Father God, we love you so much. And Lord, I just thank you for the sweet time of worship that we had. That's our that's our theme this morning is worshiping you. And so I pray as we as we come to this time right now that you would bless it and you would and you would open every mind and every heart here to know that uh, and, and to be able to receive the truth uh, that they're about to hear that that everything that we do is considered worship. It's not just the songs that we sing, but Lord, it's the teaching that we hear, and it's it's everything that we do. It's all of our actions. It's how we serve the church. Everything is done to worship and to glorify you, and I hope we see that this morning, and I hope we take that truth out of here as we leave this place today. Lord, I pray your spirit fall upon this place, and even though there's a few people here and it's it's not full, Lord, everybody here is here by your providence this morning. So God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would go to work and open every heart and open every eye and open every every ear to the truth of your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Amen. All right, so we're jumping back in this morning into our Raising Dry Bones series uh, and continuing to look at uh, riding the ship. And this week's ship is the ship of worship. It's one of the most beautiful aspects of God's work in saving his church is that he calls all kinds of people into fellowship together. So it's people from formal and traditional backgrounds and people who may be a little more casual in their approach, but but all are gathered together in Jesus. Every one of us gathered together in Christ. And so that can make, really, and we've seen it in, in the life of Crossway, it can make for some challenges when it comes when we come together to worship. So let me ask you a question. How would you answer this question? And I don't want you to blurt your answer out loud, but just think about how would you answer this question? How does corporate worship affect our unity? How does corporate worship affect our unity? So it's not, it's not just today that, that worship has the potential to be divisive because we've seen it divide churches over style of music and, and contemporary versus traditional and hymns versus somebody standing on stage with a guitar. We, we see that it's, it, worship can be divisive, but it's not just today that it can be divisive. Uh, if you remember when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, she attempted to debate him on worship. Should God's people worship in Jerusalem or at the Twin Mountains? That's what she asked. And remember what he said to her. He said he taught her what worship was. He said God is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. All right, so today, obviously, we, we're not going to be able to tackle everything that there is to say about worship. We'd be here until 2 o'clock, but what we're going to look at, what we're going to consider, is how we can help each other toward this ultimate goal of worshiping Christ. Right. So true worship, to answer the question, how does corporate worship affect our unity? Well, true worship naturally fosters unity. So we'll start by defining worship and also corporate worship. We'll define the difference in the two, and then we'll look at uh, a few ways that corporate worship has a particular role to play in our life as a, as a body, all right? So the definition of worship, that's our first point, a definition of worship. Worship is a, an extremely important and extremely valuable concept in Scripture. There's no one main Greek word that, that we can look at that corresponds with, uh, with worship. Uh, there's no Greek word that corresponds with our English word worship, but there's a lot of different terms. And if you look through the New Testament, it's clear that worship extends well beyond what goes on in this church building on a Sunday morning. 
extends well beyond that. And it's, and it's definitely well beyond praise in the form of song. Worship involves every aspect of how we approach the Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And the Romans, he wrote, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's Romans 12, 1. So Jesus, he's the, he's the perfect Lamb of God. He's the one who is sufficient for sacrifice for us, right? And so the sacrifices we offer in the New Covenant, they're not burnt offerings, right? They're not, they're not bringing... The, uh, they're not bringing um, the lambs to slaughter. That's not the sacrifices we offer like they did in the Old Testament, but submission of every aspect of our lives to the glory and praise of God. That's worship. That's biblical worship defined in the New Testament. So then how do we define the, the word worship? Well, worship is engaging God, engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. I want to say that again in case you're writing it down. Worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. That's worship. And that includes all of life. That, that includes everything and every aspect of your life. Your affections, your actions, your obedience, your relationships. It all includes corporate worship. Our times of praising God and edifying each other together. That's, that's, that's worship. All right, and so here are three things that, that worship is. Number one, worship is God-centered. True worship is God-centered. So it's a, it's a response, a proper response to the goodness and the greatness of the character of God. A God who's worthy of our praise. Is he not worthy of our praise? Amen, he's worthy of our praise. So worship goes beyond just intellectually knowing what God is and who God is. But worship takes joy in the perfection of his attributes, right? That's, that's what worship is. We take joy in the fact that God is holy and the fact that God is just and the fact that God will judge sinners on the day of judgment. We take joy in that fact in the attributes of God. So worship is God-centered, but number two, worship is also Christ-centered. Worship is Christ-centered. Our worship is only possible because Jesus died on the cross, and not only because he died on the cross, because he was raised the third day. So his, his death and resurrection is what makes possible our worship. Without that sacrifice on our behalf, we wouldn't be able to enter the presence of God. And we wouldn't have hope for the image that we have of heaven. Right? We wouldn't have any hope. So we can see Christ-centered worship uh, all throughout Scripture, but we can really see it clearly in Revelation 5. God's sitting on the throne. He's holding a scroll that's sealed. And, and, and only the line of the tribe of Judah, who is also the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, only he can open that scroll. Only he is worthy of opening that scroll. And so it says in verse 6, we read that Christ stands in the very center of the throne, one with God himself. One with God himself. So Christ is praised as the one who was slain, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. So from that point on to the book of Revelation, worship is then addressed to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, so, so worship is God-centered, but worship is also Christ-centered. And here's the third one. Worship is also Spirit-empowered. It's Trinitarian in nature. God-centered, Christ-centered, but it's also empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches us to sing 
before he teaches us in scripture to sing to one another, to give thanks in, in, in our hearts to God. In Ephesians 5, 18, uh, he, he teaches us and calls us to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus teaches that the Spirit's ministry among, among us is one that brings him glory. He said in John 16, 14, the Spirit will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. That's John 16, 14. So, because of all that, because worship is God-centered, because it's Christ-centered, because it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, what's a biblical understanding of worship? How do we understand worship in a biblical sense? Well, to summarize what, I, what we just said, three things. Number one, worship is a proper response to God himself. Worship is a proper response to God himself. Worship is something that, that is commanded of every single one of us who calls ourselves believers. It's a natural and right reaction to the glory of God. See, you're, 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 once you go from, from, from dead in your sin and trespasses to a child of God, to a believer, your, 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 the nature, your very nature changes. And worshiping God, the God who created you, the God who saved you, then becomes natural to you. So it's, it's natural and a right reaction to the glory of God. Uh, it, 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 it's also a proper, it, it also encompasses our entire lives. So it's not simply just like we just did. It's not simply just singing songs to God. That's, that's in, in, in praising God, but it involves both action and adoring him. All right. Singing, praising him, and also the action of our lives. So worship doesn't end with what we say, but it also includes what we do. All right, that's worship. And it's a joy also in the beauty of God. And it's a joy in the beauty of Christ. Right? It's not a delight in the experience of worship, but it's, it's our culture. Right? It's our, it's our evangelical culture. So too many times, worship refers to the emotions that we experience when we close our eyes and we sing to God. Right? Too many times, we just focus on that experience ourselves itself. And we can get caught up in it, but worship, that emotions are good. Emotions are important, but it's not the very root, right? God is the very root of that experience. That's true worship. So we should focus our hearts and our minds on God and Christ in our worship. So if worship has a, if it has a lot of passion, but not really any genuine thought, then it's not true worship. Right? If it has a lot of emotion but not any true intellectual thought, then it's not true worship. And the opposite's true too. If, it, if, if, if worship is only thinking right things with no intent to stir our affections and our emotions to God, it's also a false worship. That makes sense? That makes sense. All right, so that's the definition of worship. Here's number two the definition of corporate worship. The definition of corporate worship. The time we gather together here on Sunday mornings as a congregation, publicly for the purpose of praising God. That's, that's what we consider and call uh, public or corporate worship. And so God's given us some guidance through Scripture about what happens when a body of believers gathers together publicly for the purpose of worshiping Him. And, and we're real fortunate that He, that he does give us those, those guidelines. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't know. But if you look in the, in the New Testament, what it tells us, we see commands... From God, he gives commands to the church to pray, right? He gives commands to pray, commands to read scripture publicly, 
to listen to preaching and teaching. He also commands us to baptize believers. He commands us to make disciples. He commands us to share in the Lord's Supper, to encourage each other, and to praise Him in song. Those are all commands, and also to give up our finances. And 1 Corinthians 14, 26 is extremely, extremely clear. Every one of these things that we do and we do together must be done for the strengthening of the church. It's all done for the strengthening of the church. There's some things that the New Testament tells us to do when we gather, either by command or by example. But what about other things? Maybe, maybe you like to, like to hike, and maybe you think if you go on a hike, it's a good way to get your heart and your mind excited about praising God. And what if every other week we here at Crossway decided we're going we're to leave the church building, we're going to go on a hike on a Sunday morning rather than meet in this building? What, 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 we would be assembling together, right? We would be assembling together just like we're commanded in Hebrews 10, and we'd be worshiping God. But would that be corporate worship? Would it be corporate worship? It definitely wouldn't fit the normal pattern of what Scripture lays out uh, to define what a church does together in the time that we meet together for worship. All right. So God has defined in his word how we should approach him corporately. So it is possible for us, whether we believe it or not, it is possible, according to scripture, for us to offer wrong worship to God. See, he's, he's infinite. He's all wise. He's, he's omniscient. But it, we are not. Right? We're finite. We're, we are uh, sinfully self-interested in our own glory. That's what caused the fall. Right? That's, that's, that's what fell. That's how Adam and Eve fell, because they were interested in their own glory. They robbed God of his glory, and we've been doing it ever since. So we can't know him. We all believe this, right? We can't know him until he reveals himself to us, right? right. Also, we can't understand what worship will be pleasing to him unless he reveals that to us as well. It's the truth. So the Bible makes it clear how we should worship God, especially when we worship together in public, corporately as a body of believers. For example, if we, if we look at the second commandment, Exodus 20, he, God prohibits worship through images, right? He, prohibit, he, he prohibits worship, worship through images. So he alone determines how he will be worshiped, how he will be served. And the consequences are, are fairly clear when people build and worship the golden calf, Right? When we, when we build and worship our golden calf, which if you, if you even look at that specific example, it was probably intended to represent God, but it obviously wasn't pleasing to God. So Jesus, he rejected, if you, if you remember in, in Mark 7, he, he rejected the worship of the Pharisees. Mark 7, 7, he quoted Isaiah. He said, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So there is wrong worship. There is there is are ways to wrongfully offer worship to God. Scripture's clear on the ways that we should approach Him when we gather publicly. God has done this so our worship won't be confused with other religions and with other gods. So all that to say that when we think about our worship corporately as a body, we got to understand that the Bible doesn't leave us free to improvise. We're not free to improvise how we worship. It actually regulates the elements of worship and the content of our worship. Now, the forms of those elements of worship might change over time. 
See, in one generation, we might sing a cappella or in choirs or out of a hymnal. And in another generation, we might have a guy standing up here with a, with a guitar and a, and a TV. The forms of them might change over time, but the actual content and the elements of our worship never change, should never change. See, how we worship says a lot about us to the, to the watching world, to the unbelievers, to the visitors coming in. Visitors who come in, they're, they're watching our public worship. They're watching how we engage in worship. So, so to sum it up, corporate worship is gathering publicly as a church to engage with God according to his instruction in his word. Does that make sense? So, so corporate worship, I'm going to say it again. Corporate worship is, is engaging as a church with God according to his instruction in his word. And one key component of this that I want to point out before I move on, but one very important and key component at the center of corporate worship must be expositional and exegetical preaching. It has to be. Because God's word and understanding what it says is the pinnacle of engaging with God as he reveals himself to his people. See, if a church doesn't preach that way, if, they, if the preacher doesn't break down in God's word, if he, doesn't, uh, if he doesn't give you a proper understanding of God, God's word, if he leaves it all up to your figuring it out, he just gives you a, a broad stroke overview, then how are you ever going to be, how is God ever going to reveal himself truly and fully to you? He's not. He's not because God reveals himself where? In his word, in his word. That's how we know God today. That's how we come to God today is in his word. That's how he speak to, speaks to us. And so a pastor, a preacher, a teacher has to break it down expositionally and exegetically. It, and, and of course, it's singing is, of course, part of worship, part of our worship. And it's help, helpful in focusing our thoughts and focusing our emotions. But the exposition of God's word is the centerpiece of the church gathering. Amen. Amen. All right. So here's our third point. That's, that's uh, the definition of corporate worship. The next one is unity in corporate worship. Unity in corporate worship. So now that we define corporate worship, let's look at this, this third one. How do we maintain unity in corporate worship in spite of our differences, in spite of our diversity and our preferences? How do we maintain unity in it? Well, Philippians 2.2 says that as a church, we are to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. But one of the things that, that, that gives excitement to the church's witness is its diversity. Right? That should give excitement to the church. The fact that different sinners from different backgrounds choose to love each other because of the power of God at work in us. That should excite us. We should be excited when we have differences of opinion and differences of preference amongst our body. It shouldn't divide us. It should actually bring us closer together. And we know that different people are going to find different styles of corporate worship to be more or less emotionally or intellectually engaging. So how do we approach corporate worship when each one of us who has our own preferences and likes and dislikes with regard to music or the style of service, how do we approach it? Well, if you keep reading in Philippians 2, uh, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others, 
better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the answer is humility. Humility. We're called to submit to each other for the sake of Christ, to love each other and serve each other in this way. Even as we do it uh, in so many aspect, other aspects of our church life, we do it the same when it comes to worship. And the, reason, the reason that I want to emphasize that point so much is because so many times we see, we see a, a strange difference, a, a, a completely contrasting um, set of circumstances when we look at churches. Corporate worship is the one time that we are most self-consciously fo- focusing on the attention as a body on the glory of God. That's what corporate worship should be. We should be, we should be self-interested. Our, our self-interest should align with bringing God glory during corporate worship. But so often corporate worship is the aspect of a church's life that prompts so much selfishness. How many, how, how many times have you seen churches split over, over worship and styles of music? And do you know how selfish, selfish that is for that to happen? See, that shouldn't be the case. If we thought of corporate worship as something that involves just me and Jesus, then we're going to be disappointed if it's not our preferred style. We need to think of corporate worship as something that we do together as a family. We do it together as a family in love for each other and for God. That's what it is. So so how can we learn to think that way? How do we learn... To approach Sunday morning with with a sense of desperate need for him. That's one way we can do it. Worship's not fundamentally about me. It's not about us. It's about me seeing and experiencing God together with the body of believers here at Crossway because we we love each other. So, So let's not come to this place hungry to have our personal preferences met, but hungry for a deeper connection with our church community and a deeper understanding of God himself. Amen. Are y'all following? Amen. So, so three thoughts of what this could look like. First, sacrifice. Corporate worship is to be glorifying to God because we do it together, and that involves sacrifice. Like so many areas of our, of our church life, it, it, it calls for us to sacrifice. Second would be growth. We got to remember that in love we can we can learn to use worship styles and traditions that that might at first seem different and foreign to us, but we can grow in our appreciation for them. So growth, sacrifice, growth, and the third, being considerate, being considerate. We should keep in mind the importance of not doing things that would distract others in the congregation from worshiping. So I might not like a certain worship style. And that worship style might be the style of worship that we, that, we, that we worship to this week. But me being critical of that and me talking about it and making fun of that can prevent Marty from worshiping. Because Marty might be able to worship with that, with that style of worship. Because see, worship, that would be me making worship about me. And, the, and that me being vocal about it can prevent others from actually worshiping. You might not be into contemporary worship like we heard today, but you being critical of it can prevent others who are, who are fine with that worship style from worshiping. So that's being selfish in making worship about you. And it's not about you. It's about bringing glory to God. 
All right, so here's the fourth one. Here's our last one. Corporate worship as a platform for unity. Corporate worship as a platform for unity. So we talked about how we can work toward unity in corporate worship. With, and so with the rest of the time, not very long, I want to talk about three ways that our corporate worship helps our unity and our witness. All right, so the first one would be corporate worship displays our God-glorifying unity. Corporate worship displays our God-glorifying unity. So it's an opportunity to display unity that we have in Christ. It's, it's great when we can sit, sit when we have our morning devotion times and we have our morning quiet times. It's, it's absolutely great when we can sit on our own in the morning and praise God for part of his character during that devotion time. But there's something very, very special about gathering publicly as a body of believers and praising God together. Peter said that that's one of the reasons that God brought the Jew and Gentile together in the church. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are people belonging to God that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of the dark darkness into the wonderful light. So that's why, And that's why Jesus was so insistent that we deal with disunity before we worship. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift... At the altar, and, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Paul said the same thing when he talked about the Lord's Supper. He said in, in 1 Corinthians 11, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why we tell you during the Lord's Supper, every single time we have it, if you have not prepared your heart, if you have uh, something against a brother or a brother has something against you, or if you've just not prepared your heart to come to the table, don't come to the table because you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And that's not where you want to be. You don't want to eat and drink judgment over yourself by taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. All right, so what does it mean to, to recognize the body of the Lord, like Paul said here. Paul's talking about how the Corinthians celebrated the Lord's Supper in disunity. See, what they did is they humiliated the poor among them. Some would come to the table uh, and have plenty to eat, while others come to the table and had nothing to eat. But the, the, but the ones who had plenty to eat didn't share with the ones who had nothing to eat. So they, they came to the table in dis, disunity. And the body of Christ he's talking about is the church. And so unity has to be present if we are offering a pleasing sacrifice to God. And when unity is present, uh, corporate unity, it brings glory to God. So regularly, not just in preparation for the Lord's Supper, but on a regular basis, we need to examine our hearts, examine our relationships with each other as well as with God. Really and truly, if we are not in unity with one another, if we're not in unity with another brother and sister in Christ who might not even be a part of this body, we really shouldn't come to worship on a weekly basis until we get those situations. God God is trying to tell us that there should not be disunity in our lives, that we're intent on coming to worship on a weekly basis. So if we're intent to come into worship on a weekly basis, then we've got to get those, those, those relationships in order, we have to go and seek reconciliation with those that we have issues with. Amen. All right. So, so when we, um, the second thing is, is corporate worship is edifying. Corporate worship is edifying. So it's an opportunity for us to edify each other. 
in Scripture, God's not the, He isn't the only one that we address during times of corporate worship. Paul said in Ephesians, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. So he says, speak to one another. So when we sing, that's Ephesians 5, 19. Um, but when we sing on, on Sunday morning, or we read scripture, or we pray, we're communicating not only to God, but also to each other. Why is that important? Because we need to be reminded of the truths in scripture. That God created us, that he's perfectly just, that we've sinned against him, that Jesus died as our substitute on the cross. We hear those truths from sermon, but it helps us to also hear them from our brothers and sisters around us, too. And here's the third one, the last one. Corporate worship offers us a taste of heaven. Corporate worship offers us a taste of heaven. It gives us a taste of what heaven's going to be like. Heaven's the place where the full entire community of God's people will reside with him forever, praising his name and bringing him glory. Don't that just get you excited? Good grief. Corporate worship is just a snapshot of that experience. So we can appreciate it here in this life right now. Right? When we come together on Sunday mornings, we catch a glimpse of the glory of the final congregation in heaven. That, that's when heaven feels most real, when we appreciate the things of God as the things that are most valuable to us. We need the picture that corporate worship paints of heaven because despite the brokenness of, of the world around us, heaven is our home. It's our true home. This world that we live in today, temporary. We're just passing through. We're not citizens of this world. If we're believers and children of God, we're citizens of heaven. And in heaven, we're going to be perfectly united with Christ. So the unity that we experience while we worship corporately in this life points us forward to the ultimate unity that we're going to know in him on that day. Amen? Does that not get you excited? It should. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that it's not changed. I thank you that no matter who tells us that, that the culture dictates the word, that's not the truth. The word dictates our culture or should dictate our culture. But our world is in such a terrible place right now because we have forgotten that true fact. And so, Lord, I pray that, that we understand that worshiping you should be the center of our lives. I pray that, that as we come to you on a weekly basis, we come not only to sing songs that we feel like worship you, but we, we understand that the sermon and that the Sunday school and then, and then our actions when we leave, all of it is a form of worship unto you. Every action in our life glorifies you. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't glorify you, then it is wrong worship. So I, I pray that we understand that as we go out amongst this place. Lord, as your, as your gospel is proclaimed in just a moment, Lord, I pray that if there be anybody here that doesn't know your son Jesus as, as Lord and Savior, I pray that, that you would open their hearts and their eyes this morning, that you, would, that you would do a work, the Holy Spirit would work amongst us this morning to bring someone to salvation. I pray that now in Jesus' holy, glorious, and beautiful name. Amen. So. Marty said something this morning. I believe it was Marty. For me, I believe it was Marty. I can't remember who said it, but during Sunday school, uh, and I didn't speak up and, and, and say it, but uh, 
you know, there's we, we talked about you know the, the number of people in church today that uh, that um, that go to church but really aren't believers, really aren't, and and you know they hear the gospel. And they would consider themselves to be believers. They would consider themselves, but they have no hope. You know, they, they would be the ones out there that, that, that when death and despair comes into their lives, they, they, they're tragically affected and have no hope. But they've heard the gospel. But here's the gospel that they've heard. You want to go to heaven when you die? Or do you want to go to hell? But I want to go to heaven. Well, you need to believe in Jesus. And they go their whole lives. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Christ. I believe in the Savior. But they never know the reason for the need of a Savior. And if we never understand why we need a Savior, then I don't think we can really say that we've been saved. Because what are you being saved from? You're just punching a ticket to heaven when you die. Well, everybody wants to punch a ticket to heaven when they die. They don't want to go to hell and burn for all of eternity. Right? They, they want to go to heaven. Why do you need a savior? Why did Jesus have to come? Why did God bankrupt heaven and send his only son to live the life that we couldn't live? Why did he come? Because we cannot do it ourselves. Yeah, heaven's a byproduct of salvation. It is. But it is not the reason for salvation. God saves you. So that you can grow his kingdom. But, but first of all, why does he save you? Why do you need a savior? Because you can't do it yourself. God's, God's requirement is perfection. God requires perfection of each and every one of us. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever looked at another person with lust? Have you ever, have you ever uh, uh, used God's name in vain? Every one of us has done, probably broken all of the commandments. But the, but the Bible says if you've broken one, you've broken them all. So every one of us are stand before God on the day that we die, we would stand before him guilty, guilty. Because God's a good judge, right? He's not going to let sin go unpunished. And so we would all be thrown into hell if we relied upon ourselves. And so since we cannot, we cannot obtain the perfection that God requires, God sent his son born of a virgin to live the life that we can't live. So Jesus came and for 33 and a half years, he walked this earth and never once sinned, never once done anything that was wrong. And that qualified Jesus to go to the cross, to be the substitute for our death. So Jesus went to the cross. He hung on the cross. He took a beat and he was spit upon. He was humiliated all for the purpose for taking on the very sin that we committed. And so Jesus took every bit of it on himself. It was all the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus because of us. He took what we deserve and he offers us what he deserves, which is the spot in heaven with his father because he's perfect. So Jesus took the wrath of God. God, God poured every bit of that wrath out upon his son and it pleased him to do it is what Isaiah says. It pleased him to crush Jesus because the one who knew no sin became sin for us. So he got thrown in the tomb, and three days later, though, God approved of, uh, approved of the sacrifice of Jesus, and he raised him from the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And all that would believe in him, all that would believe in him, would be saved. So I'll ask you today, if you've never come into a saving knowledge or a saving relationship with Jesus, you can. He says, everyone who calls out upon his name will be saved. So I'll, I, if you've never 
believed in Christ. If you've never, if you've never taken that step of obedience, as we have this time of invitation, you, you walk in this aisle is not magical. That's not going to save you. God'll save you right there in your seat. But we'd all love to, we'd all love to celebrate with you this morning. If God has done a work in your life, if God's been working on you with church membership, now or baptism. If you if you consider yourself to be a believer but you've never been baptized, now's the time to uh, to respond. But if you'll all stand. As we have this time of invitation, I'll ask you to respond. Respond in faith.